Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime. This is episode six and I am your host Lizzie. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We've got a really interesting story, one I was not familiar with until I started the research, Um, but it's quite the story, quite the life. So today we're looking at the crimes and the criminal, Jane Toppin. Now, Jane is an American serial killer who earned the nickname Jolly Jane. She confessed to over 31 murders and is quoted as saying, I want to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. But before we get to Jane's murder spree, I want to go all the way back and talk about Jane's childhood. She was born... Honora Kelly in Boston, Massachusetts on April 31st, 1854. Nora, as she was known at the time, was the youngest of three daughters, a sister Delia, who was at least two years older, and another older sister named Nellie. Her parents were Peter and Bridget Kelly, Irish immigrants. Now, when Nora was only a few years old, her mother passes away from tuberculosis, a very common uh, disease for the time. And her father, Peter, was a tailor and an alcoholic. Peter also likely suffered from mental health issues. uh, But of course, we weren't as um, kind to those with mental health issues back in the 1800s because he earns himself the nickname Kelly the Crack. And that's because he was considered a crackpot or cracked in the head. Um, In all likelihood, Nora and her sister's childhood, probably pretty miserable. They lost their mother at a young age. Their father is um, mentally ill, also very likely abusive. Uh, He was known as a violent man. And one rumor has it uh, that as he was starting to lose his mind, he tries to sew his eyelids shut. So not the uh, stable and loving home that you would want to be raised in. And Peter realizes this himself because around 1860, he takes Delia and Nora to an orphanage in the city's south end called the Boston Female Asylum. According to research by Alan Avril and Cook for Radford University, when the board at the asylum examines the girls, they note their unkept appearance and bad hygiene, and they determined that the girls had likely been subjected to neglect and possibly abuse. The decision to let the girls stay at the asylum is unanimous. A.W. Naves in their article for Medium.com states that although no documentation exists describing their life at the orphanage, there is documentation from their acceptance that states the girls were rescued from a very miserable home. The history around the orphanage itself is actually pretty interesting, and we have some details uh, thanks to a 2006 newsletter from the South End Historical Society. Founded in 1800, the Boston Female Asylum's mission was to help the relieving, instructing, employing, and assisting young girls in need. The asylum was actually the first charity in Boston to be created and run entirely by women, and its bylaws stipulated that all directors and active members had to be female. The asylum was also the first organization in the city solely dedicated to assisting children. After a new building was constructed in 1844, the asylum's administrative center and home were relocated to the south end. The building was actually designed by prominent architect Isaiah Rogers, and the cornerstone was set on June 25, 
1844. Under the cornerstone was a metal box containing an 1844 coin and an inscription on a silver plate. It seems that the asylum enjoyed pretty strong public support right from the start. 11 gifts totaling at least $1,000 were given during the 1844 campaign to raise money for the new structure. Now, in 1850, probably around 100 girls would have been living at the asylum. There would have been a governess, a matron, two teachers, an assistant, a cook, and a seamstress on staff. The way that the asylum worked uh, was that residents would be indentured to families in the country at around 14 years of age. And in return, the host family would commit to giving the young women $20 when they turned 17, $30 when they turned 18 and to send her away with an outfit suitable to her age when her duty was complete. So all of that to say that like basically the girls were given to families as servants um, and then when they aged out they would have left the home with a little bit of money and just kind of set on their way to figure things out on their own. Delia and Nora spend time at the orphanage but the oldest sister Nellie Uh, By the time Peter gave up his children, she was old enough to be on her own. It does appear that she too suffered from mental illness and was ultimately committed to an asylum. It's unknown whatever happened to the father, Peter. Um, But Delia, the other sister, uh, her fate, like that of Nellie and Peter, is mostly unknown. There are rumors, however, that when she ages out of the orphanage, she is forced to become a prostitute to survive because she wasn't fortunate enough to find a place like Nora. So now it's November 1862, and Nora is placed in the home of Anne Toppin in Lowell, Massachusetts, as an indentured servant. Due to the prejudice towards Irish people at the time, the Toppins actually informed their friends and neighbors that Nora's Italian and that her parents had passed away and that's how she came to the orphanage and then to their home. Despite never formally adopting her, they do change her name from Nora to Jane Toppin. Jane is described as, and I'm, this is in air quotations, black Irish, meaning that she had olive Mediterranean style complexion and dark hair. Uh, So she actually could probably have passed for Italian at the time. And the Toppins also have uh, a daughter of their own named Elizabeth, who is older than Jane. So Jane's uh, now an indentured servant at the Toppins household. Uh, She also still has to go to school. And it's while she's at school that she uh, starts to exhibit signs of being a pathological liar. Uh, She makes up tales about her father sailing around the globe. Uh, She tells people her sister is getting married to an English lord and that her brother received an award from Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg. Jane was also known to be quite the gossip uh, and specifically would gossip about anyone she didn't like or who she thought crossed her. Some are going to point to this behavior at school as the early signs of Jane being a sociopath. When Jane is 18, she's released from her indentured servitude and paid $50 when she completes high school at the age of 18. But she does decide to continue to work as a servant in the Toppin household. And she stays on even after Anne Toppin passes away sometime in the 1870s and her daughter Elizabeth takes over the household. 
However, there's some sort of conflict that leads Jane to leave the house after Elizabeth is married to her husband, a deacon named Ormel Brigham, and he moves in. At one point, Jane herself is rumored to have been engaged, but that her fiancé leaves her for another woman. Now it's 1885, and it's the first time that Jane is going to try and stand on her own two feet. So she leaves the top in household, and she wants to make a name for herself. However, it's the late 1800s, and her options are going to be limited, specifically because she's a woman. She decides she'd like to go into nursing. So she, in 1887, applies and is accepted to the nursing school at Cambridge Hospital in Boston. Remember, previously in school, Jane was gossipy and just not very well liked. So this is a chance for her to reinvent herself. This time, those around her at nursing school actually find Jane to be highly likable. That's how she earns the moniker or the nickname of Jolly Jane. But life as a trainee nurse wasn't that easy. They worked seven days a week, 12-hour days, with only two weeks off per year. So it was quite challenging. However, compared to her previous life as a domestic servant, Jane probably found it to be exciting and difficult, but in a challenging way. Now, as time goes on, Jane's true colors do begin to emerge. She starts to become known again as a terrible gossip and a liar. For example, she tells other students that she's offered a job by the Tsar of Russia, and they also notice she starts to steal things. Well, she couldn't have been considered a favorite among the students. She actually had a good reputation among the patients, at least at the start. According to Conleaf on an article for headstuff.org, later investigations revealed that she actually knowingly fabricated documents to extend the stays of patients that she liked. Although nobody would have suspected Jolly Jane of such behavior, she may have given them the incorrect dosage of medication in an effort to make them sicker so they'd have to stay at the hospital longer. But Jane didn't like every kind of patient. Uh, She actually really disliked elderly people under her care. She frequently would remark that it was no, or there was no purpose in keeping them alive. Commonly, this was taken as a joke at the time. We're going to find out later, nope, not a joke at all. During her time as a student nurse, Jane killed up to as many as 12 patients. She would begin her work as a poisoner by giving her patients opium in secret so she could see the drug's effects firsthand. Very quickly, Jane realized, uh, I really like watching people suffer. And she was ecstatic when the first patient actually passed away. So she learned quickly, not only can I get away with murdering people, I really enjoy the process and the outcome. And also, no one was growing suspicious, so she began to escalate her behavior. She starts to mix atrophine with morphine, which uh, resulted in people having convulsions. Because atrophine expands the pupils of the eyes, but morphine contracts them. So actually, the symptoms cancel each other out. So it wouldn't be apparent that she had poisoned patients with either medication. The combination of other symptoms also completely puzzled the doctors who at the time are trying to determine what's wrong with their patients. The poison's botanical composition also assists in hiding them from the tests and tools that would have been available at that time. 
she used her work as a means of enhancing her own image by nursing patients back to health with miraculous recoveries after they had been on the verge of death. People find Jane to be a competent nurse and competent enough that she's originally on the fast track to promotion by the time she finished her training and had built up enough of a reputation to land a position at the prestigious Massachusetts General Hospital. She does soon, however, though, gain a reputation for altering medical records and taking credit for other people's work. So that they figured out about Jane, but no one suspects that she's actually mixing chemicals to quietly torture and kill patients. No one's suspicious about that yet. We do have at least one story of a patient who survives uh, a murder attempt by Jane, and that patient's name is Amelia Finney. Uh, And allegedly, Jane gives her medication that tastes sour and makes her pass out following a surgery she has in 1887. She claims that Jane gets into bed with her as she starts to pass out and begins kissing her before stopping because something nearby frightens Jane. Now, Amelia does quickly recant her account, saying she believed it might have been a fever dream, she wasn't in the right state of mind. Amelia wouldn't learn the truth for 14 years until Jane is arrested and her crimes come to light. Despite all of this, Jane receives a positive recommendation from Massachusetts General in 1889, but she is considered to be quite the divisive staff member. Doctors seem to like Jane and find her to be a competent nurse, but she is not popular among her fellow nurses. Again, she gets uh, suspected of petty crimes like stealing, and she ends up being fired in 1890. There's a couple of different sources on this or differing accounts. Some say she's fired because she leaves the ward without permission, while other accounts say that she's fired for improperly administering opiates. Regardless of the exact reason, uh, Jane is let go, and as a result, she's denied a license to practice as a nurse. So despite being fired, many of the doctors who like her give her a recommendation um, to work as a private nurse. And after a short stint private nursing, she decides to return to Cambridge Hospital to try and get her license there. Things don't go very well for Jane at Cambridge Hospital. One of the doctors discovers an attempt she made to poison a trainee nurse called Maddie Davis. While he does blame it on negligence in her administering medication rather than a malicious intent, another doctor finds a trend that convalescing patients tend to pass away in Jane's care. It's enough for him to inform the board and Jane's contract is cancelled. So once again, she fails to get her license uh, for nursing. Hospital work is no longer an option for Jane, so she decides to get back into private nursing. Now, private nursing does have some pros. She would have been paid quite a bit more. According to the New England Historical Society, Jane would have been earning $25 a week private nursing, while the average working woman at the time would have only earned about $5 a week. So it's not all bad news for Jane, and in 1895, she's living as a boarder on Wendell Street in Cambridge. Her landlords are an elderly couple named Israel and Levy Dunham. Remember that early in her career, Jane flat out admits she doesn't see much use in keeping old people alive. And now she's living with an elderly couple. So I think we can all put two and two together here. Uh, Jane's going to decide that Israel is simply getting too elderly and in her words, feeble and fussy. So she kills him. Although his cause of death at the time is determined to be a heart attack, we know that's not the case. 
Two years later, she poisons and murders Israel's wife, Lovey. So despite no longer working in a hospital setting and having easy access to a lot of patients, Jane is finding ways to keep murdering. Another example is in 1889, a 70-year-old woman named Mary McClear is visiting Cambridge when she becomes ill. Her physician recommends Jane as a private nurse and sends her to take care of Mary. Jane then decides to poison and murder Mary. A month later, she kills her close friend, Sarah Connors. Why? Because Jane wants her job as a dining hall matron. And her plan works. Jane takes Sarah's job, but it doesn't last. Because she's fired for reports of incompetence and money goes missing. Jane's employment record is going to remain spotty, but uh, she does still have a relationship with her foster sister, Elizabeth. And in 1889, Jane is going to invite Elizabeth to visit her while she's on vacation on Cape Cod because Elizabeth shares with Jane that she's feeling depressed. Elizabeth, however, is completely unaware uh, that Jane hates her. Jane felt growing up that Elizabeth always made sure to keep her in her place uh, and made her feel like she should be lucky and grateful to even be with the family. And Elizabeth was the only real top and daughter and Jane didn't count. Only a few days after Elizabeth's arrival in Cape Cod, her husband will receive a telegram informing him that she's fallen seriously ill. By the time he arrives, she's in a coma uh, and she's never going to wake up. She dies the following morning, surrounded by her husband and her loving sister, Jane. What no one knows is that Jane had taken Elizabeth to the beach for a picnic of cold corned beef taffy, and mineral water laced with poison. Later in a confession, Jane actually says, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. Jane can murder friends, strangers, and now family without any kind of remorse. Uh, So after her death of her sister, she just goes on living her normal life. Um, Remember, she's killed her previous landlords, Israel and Lovey. So she's at a new place. She's now boarding with Melvin and Eliza Beadle. Now, previously, uh, Jane will have rented a vacation home and decides that she doesn't want to pay. So the owner of that rental home is a woman named Maddie. And Maddie decides that she's actually going to come down to Boston and confront Jane. When she does that, Jane lets her into the home and offers her a glass of water. uh, And that glass of water is, of course, going to be laced with poison. The Beatles offer Maddie a place to rest when she starts to feel poorly. And this gives Jane the perfect opportunity to inject her with even more morphine. Over the next seven days, Jane will continue to poison Maddie right under the nose of everyone, including a doctor that's been called in. Jane goes so far as to even lower and raise the dose randomly. So she brings Maddie in and out of consciousness uh, so she can talk to her family and friends before she doses her uh, and she goes unconscious again. Inevitably, Jane will dose her one final time and that dose will be the fatal one. Maddie has uh, two daughters and a husband. So after her death, her two daughters, Genevieve and Minnie, decide they're going to stay with their elderly father. They make the mistake of inviting Jane to also stay as a house guest. Uh, Terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. 
According to the article on headstuff.org, Jane begins to amuse herself by setting fires. Um, but ultimately, arson just isn't enough and she needs to go back to her murdering ways. Jane decides to tell Minnie that she has seen her sister Genevieve with a tin of arsenic, um, implying that Jane, not Jane, sorry, that Genevieve may want to harm herself. So Minnie and Jane decide that they need to watch her in case she does something. Then Jane goes and murders Genevieve with arsenic. Now, this is going to be the first time that Jane uses arsenic uh, because she believed it was too easily detected. But in this specific scenario, she's already planted the seeds that Genevieve um, is is suicidal. So uh, she doesn't think that she's going to be caught. And she's not, at least not right away. Genevieve's official cause of death is listed as heart disease. Only two weeks later, the father Alden is going to pass away from grief. In reality, it's actually at the hand of Jane and Morphine, but they think he passed away from a broken heart. Only Minnie is left standing, and that doesn't last for long, because four days later, Jane poisons Minnie with morphine. After her first dose, Minnie is left unable to swallow, uh, so she can't dose her again. So what does Jane do? Well, she gives Minnie an enema filled with morphine, and that's how she dies. Doctors can't explain why Minnie dies, and so they list her cause of death as exhaustion. Jane has now successfully murdered an entire family, and still no one is suspicious. Well, that is except for one person, Minnie's father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs. He definitely thinks something is off. So he summons Leonard Wood, the leading toxicologist in Massachusetts, and he wants them to exhume the bodies of the Davis family to test his suspicions that they have been poisoned. Meanwhile, Jane has gone back to visit her brother-in-law, Reverend Ormel Brigham. In very quick order, Jane manages to kill his sister, poison him with morphine in his food to make him ill, uh, and she does this in hopes that she can win his affection by nursing him back to health. When Brigham rejects her, she overdoses on morphine. However, it's likely she calculated the dose so it wouldn't be fatal, but would still land her in the hospital to gain sympathy and attention. Ultimately, her plan just doesn't work. So she decides to visit an old acquaintance, uh, Sarah Knuckles in New Hampshire, after she's released from the hospital. Now, fortunately for Sarah, at the same time, uh, an autopsy is performed on Minnie on her exhumed body, and they do discover poison in her system. So the cops end up showing up to Sarah's home. Uh, now, Sarah initially is horrified to see her friend being carried away, but this police intervention definitely saved her life because no one enjoyed killing their friends more than Jane. The press and the papers have an absolute field day with Jane getting arrested because nothing sells a paper quite like a female serial killer. They even do an extensive examination of uh, Jane's morning routine. And the fact that she only has coffee for breakfast is considered an obvious sign of deviance. She's also subject to a lot of unfounded rumors that she's a morphine addict. And these are actually started by Ormel Brigham. It seems like Jane's arrest, her entire case, really should have been an open and shut thing. But two things end up happening 
The first is that the Davis family doctor had actually died from completely natural causes. Jane will claim that Ladder, the doctor, had evidence or could have proved her innocence. The second actually has to do with arsenic. And apparently arsenic is my absolute favorite topic because I seem to talk about it in every single episode, although it's such a common poison, especially for killers in the 1800s, that inevitably I think it's just going to come up time and time again. So Jane's arrested because they find evidence of arsenic in Minnie and Genevieve. And the problem was that Jane actually doesn't use arsenic to kill Minnie. That arsenic comes from embalming fluid. So prosecutors are at a loss if Jane doesn't use arsenic, how she actually kills her victims. The thing that breaks the case wide open isn't police investigation or Jane's confession. It's actually an interview by Captain Paul Gibbs, and he is Minnie's father-in-law. And he talks to the Boston Globe, and he's asked about the arsenic found in the bodies. And he says, I didn't think Jane would use anything as easily detected as arsenic. So when they ask him what he thought she used, he says morphine and atropine. He also states that Jane owed the Davis family quite a bit of money and that Alden, the father, was missing $500 from his pocket when he dies. The papers would go on to discover even more. The Boston Herald finds Jeanette Snow, who was Jane's cousin. But Jane's cousin from her original family when she's known as Nora Kelly. So Jeanette is going to share the family history of her father, Kelly the Crack, and her sister Nellie, who ends up in asylum, confirming what many people already suspected, that Jane is insane. Captain Gibbs' suspicion that Minnie was killed using a combination of morphine and atropine is confirmed at the inquest into the deaths of Genevieve and Minnie. The approach also suggests that they had to have died at the hands of someone who had some sort of medical knowledge based on the dosage needed, the way they were injected. So although they're unable to provide any proof that Jane purchased arsenic, as soon as they begin investigating her morphine transactions, they strike gold. They had more than enough proof to proceed with a trial. A grand jury is convened in December of 1901, and the jury indicts Jane. In March of 1902, three men, Dr. Henry Stedman, Dr. George Jelly, and Dr. Hosea Quinby, begin a psychiatric evaluation of Jane. Despite originally entering a not guilty plea at her arraignment, Jane begins confessing to the murders. The doctors deem her, and this is their terms, morally insane, and that she's incompetent to stand trial and would never recover. However, in order to avoid setting the precedent that a medical decision like this doesn't need jury approval, the state attorney general does decide to still hold a trial. During the trial, Dr. Stedman asks Jane why she poisons Minnie, and Jane simply says, to cause death. So not much of a defense. Uh, The whole trial lasts only eight hours, and the jury deliberates for 27 minutes before they find Jane not guilty by reason of insanity, but confined to life to the Totten Insane Hospital. It's not until after her trial is over that it's actually going to come out that Jane had previously confessed to her lawyer that she murdered an estimated 31 people. 
Other details will also emerge uh, that are quite disturbing. According to a report published in the Hosier State Chronicles shortly after her arrest, it said that she fondled her victims as they passed away and believed she could see their souls through their eyes. During police interrogations, Jane would admit that taking patients who were close to death, bringing them back to life, and then putting them back down gave her a sexual high. She enjoyed lying next to patients as they died. Later, Jane would say that her motivation is simply a lack of reason and thought combined with a strong desire to poison. Life after her trial at the asylum would not be smooth sailing. While she's there, she experiences manic depression, which causes her to have increasingly strange ideas, such as wanting to go back to being called by her birth name and becoming a nun. She was so terrified of being poisoned, uh, ironically, that by 1904, she refuses to eat anything, uh, and this sparks a new wave of newspaper attention for her. Jane ultimately does pass away on August 17, 1938, at the age of 84. She dies still confined to the asylum. While confined, some of the staff members remember instances in which she would summon them to her room and say, Get some morphine, dearie, and we'll go out in the ward. You and I will have a lot of fun seeing them die. And on that morbid note, uh, we come to the end of the life and crimes of Jane Toppin. What a wild, wild ride. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed researching and writing it. Uh, If you liked what you heard today, please check out some of our earlier episodes. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any case suggestions or feedback, you can follow us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or send us an email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next week with another case from history. See you then.